0: So David, you you know who the audience is, right? People, right?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, we are expecting like 400 people, most of them uh, executives from big creative agencies. So mostly the US, Europe, and Latin America. All of them are, like all the people that we have in the database are like either CEOs, CFOs, or or COOs. So that's mostly the audience. Okay. Mostly agencies, and and some of them also like independent agencies, but not other industries.
1: Good.
0: Great. So we will be starting in two minutes.
1: All right, so let's uh, warm up.
0: David Sable. All good. All good. I have, I'm pretty excited about the questions that I have for you. <laughs> I don't know that I have, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I, I really think that the answers are going to be of great value for, to the people.
1: OK, I hope so. I <laughs> promised everybody they'd have fun if they tuned in.
0: So <laughs> I'm going to start with an interaction that you would like.
1: All right. But don't ask me to don't ask me to introduce myself because I don't like doing that. Yeah, I, right. I, told you, I don't like saying who I am. Like you want to say anything, say it. I'm not talking anything specific about.
0: It, you know? Right.
1: If you ask me a question about something, I'll tell you. But I don't like saying, Hi, I'm David Sable, I was this, I was that. But if you ask yeah. me a specific question about my past, then I'm happy to answer. It. But it's gotta be in a question. Right. So so far there's only two of us here.
0: Yeah. And I'm gonna start webinar right now. Okay. So you're. <clears throat> How is New York weather like, David?
1: Today uh, it was a little gray this morning, but the sun came out. And it's kind of where I'm sitting on the 46th floor of the World Trade Center. It's gorgeous view. It's crazy. <laughs>
0: They have this New, York, YouTube, uh, New York feels very much alive
1: when you look out from up here.
0: Yeah, I've been at your office. Uh, so like, do you see um, New Jersey from there, from your office? You can see, well, I'm in a
1: different building, but you can see, I can see the Brooklyn Bridge. Where The way I'm looking at now, I see all the way north. So I can see all the way towards the Empire State Building and further. I have the Hudson River on the left, and I can see the East River on the right, and the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, it's, the view from where I am right now is spectacular.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. it's absolutely
1: absolute to die for. How,
0: how's the how's the building with a, with like I mean, COVID? A lot of people there? No, no. There not a lot of people in the building.
1: Um, the buildings have a very strong protocol. Uh, the Solar Steams who own the World Trade Center have put in a very, very strong protocol in all the buildings, but also these buildings were built with a very high capacity filtration system, yeah. anyways, pre-COVID. So the truth is that they the filtration, the air filtration in this building or in these buildings, is probably the best in New York, anyways. So that's pretty cool. Um, the elevators, you know, again, when you're in an elevator that, you know, high rise like this, or the elevators to high speed, the air that gets pushed through, it makes it very safe. And even then there's only, you're only allowed five people in an elevator, but I have to tell you, I haven't been in the elevator with anybody once. You know, I'm literally by myself. So, you know, it is a little, it is a little strange when you building this big and there's not so many people, but you
0: know. Yeah. So, we're in time and we, I can see people showing up. So, we're going to start, David. Uh, you know, there's a guy who, who was born in Argentina who, who studied communications and who always believed in, in the power of storytelling. And also, who always saw people like you as role models. That person is me. So thank, thanks, David, for, for having a moment with us. Well, Santi, the first thing I should do is say to you, maybe
1: get a life or meet new people. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully, I don't let you down.
0: Yeah, but I mean, for the for the audience, for sure, but also for me, this is a very special moment. So, Thank
1: you. I'm I'm uh, honored. To, I'm honored to, to be talking with you. We've, we've you know we spent some time talking over the past few weeks, and um, I promised my friends who are listening and anybody else that we'd have fun. So,
0: let's yeah, do yeah. it. And also, I mean, I was telling you last time, uh, I'm impressed. Like you've been in the industry for more than 40 years. Uh, and after 40 years, having people saying great things about you, uh, admiring you that much and all over the world. I mean, I, I talked with Justin Thomas Copeland, DDB, a new, new CEO. I talked with uh, Nino Goldberg um, in Argentina. Uh, I mean, a lot of people that consider yourself uh, a great mentor. So, I mean, that's all what you can ask for after being a, a leader in the industry for for so long, right? Well, thank you. Yeah, look, I think that
1: I think part of it is I've been lucky to know great people. You just mentioned two two of my favorite people in the world, two people that I've worked with um, in Europe, in Latin America. Justin and I work together all over the world. Uh, Nino, and he's just a very close friend, and, and Nino is one of my close friends. So it's sort of not fair because you just happen to have met a couple of people who I'm really close to. But I would say that at the end of the day, all you have is all you have is your name, and you know I think there's nothing more important than than who you are and being who you are, and. If you can make it, if you can make a contribution to people that way, I don't think there's anything better.
0: Yeah, hundred percent agree, hundred percent. So okay, everyone here, as you already know, we have David Sable, former global CEO and chairman of y today, BML y one of the world's leading global marketing communications companies, former vice chairman and COO at Wonderman today Wunderman Thompson, where he helped transform the agency into one of the world's leading digital networks. So welcome, David. Santi, again, it's great to be here with you. Great. Right. So David, first question we have for you. What is the real business of advertising today? considering that advertising investment has been cut in, in half over the last 10 years. So,
1: I believe that advertising is what it has always been. Advertising educates, it informs, it entertains, it connects people to brands, products, services, things that they like. It teaches them how to use them, what they're about, it creates image around them, it creates stories around them. And now also we're able to make it easy for them to buy. So advertising hasn't changed. In my view, in my belief, a thousand years from now, advertising will still be a business and it might be telepathy, that digital will be long gone, It'll be whatever is a thousand years from now, but telling stories that connect people is never ever going to go away as long as there's a human race. And so that's the core. Everything else is an enabler to that piece. And so the beauty of the world we live in today is that we have tremendous enablers. We have incredible ways to enable the story. We can enable interactivity in the story and let people create their own endings like with echo for example which is a great technology walmart and others use we can embed commerce into the story so you actually can stop it or even while it's going on hit a button or press a number or whatever and actually buy it while the story is going you can save this story and stop it and watch it later and back it up and go. It's incredible, the tools that we have to, to enable our stories. But the truth is, at the end of the day, it's just a story. And my proof point to you, by the way, is that if you go back and, and read, and you can Google and or Bing, so all my Microsoft friends make I said Bing in your honor. But if you go back and search, what did people believe like seven, eight years ago? So I remember somebody came to us from p after the Super Bowl. Um, uh, a few years back and said they had done this spot that was supposedly UGC, user generated, right? User generated content. And I remember this person from P&G standing in front of us and saying, we're putting you all out of business. Your business is dead because everything is going to be user generated. Well, as it turned out, the users who generated that story were freelancers. So it wasn't like two people, it wasn't like David and Santi sitting in their backyard and maybe were doctors or lawyers or window washers, It wouldn't make a difference, who had an idea and we put it together and we sent it. It was like two real guys, two busy people in our business who did a great, had a great idea, put it together. The agency still had to produce it. The joke is that since then till today, the quality of general content has gotten so high it's never been like this in the history of film, of video, of radio. Of, of It's just never been this high. There's more money being spent on production today than ever before. And again, if you go back and search, and whichever type of search you like to do, and look at everybody thought that everything would be done not even in studio. You wouldn't need studios. Everything would be done in front of, you know, green screens or blue screens. It would all be. Computer-generated, and instead, the numbers of productions that are being done on location, where the the attention to detail has never been like this. Whether it's *Downton Abbey* or *Mad Men*, whether it's *Game of Thrones* or *Money Heist*, one of my one of my new favorites, whether it's *Tehran*, it is the it's crazy. And so, think about it, people. All this content that we're looking at that is driving all the stream, the Netflixes and the Disney's and the Peacock's and everybody else. Do you want crappy looking advertising attached to that? Do you want bad ideas and cheap production attached to this incredible content? I think not. And so, Again, the notion of storytelling. Our storytelling as advertisers has to be as good as the storytelling that we are connected to. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we
0: have today. Maybe you're talking about peace. You're talking about uh, your title in today in LinkedIn is change the world. You're the son of a rabbi. Uh, yeah, How can I Yeah. How can advertising, communication, or storytelling can help change the world?
1: First of all, storytelling can change the world and it has changed the world any number of times. Every revolution began with a story. It's just fact. Every revolution in the world began with a story. Every revolution will begin with a story going forward. Um, I've been working with a group of people, uh, including Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul and Mary, was just an incredible person, incredible social activist, on helping to get the vote out. And we're working with the Parkland kids, the, the kids who from Parkland who had been involved in the shooting and these poor kids, their friends died and they were hiding under desks, not knowing if they were gonna live or die. And they wrote these beautiful songs. And the ability to take what they've done help them to put it out there, connect it to people, it's all part of the storytelling, it's all part of what has to happen. So if you're asking how advertising as an industry can, of course it can, because it has to be attached to the right things though. It's not like we, we're not brain surgeons. Like get over it, I got over this a long time ago. I decided not to be a brain surgeon, you know, when I was much, much younger wasn't what I was going to do. I didn't want to work for a nonprofit. It wasn't of, of interest to me. I wanted to be the person who helped the nonprofits, who helped the people who are trying to change the world. So I learned what it is that I do as best as I could, and I bring it to the table to apply for that. And that's what we have to do as advertisers, as marketers, as business people. Most of us are not in a position to really do more than try to be as sustainable as we can, to make sure that our products are priced the right way and are affordable, like all of these are important, but then maybe you work for luxury products and you're talking to like, you know, one half of 1% maybe of the world, but that doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that what you need to do is take your talents and turn it towards something that works take the money that you make take the money your product makes and and apply it as many great companies do so i don't look to us and say oh my god we need as an industry to i think it's us as individuals our individual companies our clients we just need to hook up with and help the people who are actually doing those things you know one of the you know the um CEO Roundtable and others, the Business Roundtable, put out this whole notion a couple of years ago about how only purposeful companies will be profitable, which is great. And then one of the companies, I won't mention, them, who made the biggest pronouncement: of this, half of their portfolio or more is in gas and oil and fracking and all that kind of stuff. So it's great that you're telling everybody else to be purposeful. Hello. I think... and. Then they talked to people like Paul Pullman when he was the CEO of Unilever, one of the most purposeful people that I've ever met in my life. Incredible human being, who's, by the way, drove Unilever, they did very well. They always turned profit. And some of the analysts, the very same people who were saying be purposeful, be purposeful, said to him, you know what? You're a little too purposeful. Use your own money to change the world. Drive more profit for us. So hey, we're always in this, we're always in this tension of we have to return quarterly to our shareholders, but then we have our own desire to return to the world. And so there's a, there's a tension, there's a challenge. So it, I think it's us as human beings who have to make that work.
0: David, it's not secret that the advertising business has been losing value and the agencies are finding it increasingly difficult to charge the work they do, right? What changes you think need to be made in order to guarantee the profitability is necessary, mostly to offer future to the talent that makes life in the industry? So how
1: do you you add value to what we do so that we get paid for what we should get paid for is really what you're saying. So let's just take a look back. Sadly, this industry devalued itself. I think some of our press devalued it. Some of our leaders devalued it. And we got caught up in this notion that somehow this whole industry had only been about 60-second commercials and had no depth. It's a lot of crap. The fact of the matter is that if you go back 30 years or so to when I started the business, agencies were the McKinsey of their time. CEOs of our clients called the CEOs of our agencies to help solve their problems. We helped create products. We opened markets. We helped move into new international, new global markets. We were culturally attuned. We helped through our other agencies when there were strikes or they had issues that that needed to be dealt with. God forbid there were were tragedies we helped with that as well. We were the go-tos and sadly we lost it. And we lost it because we became a commodity. We turned our media businesses into commodities. We became focused on our own profit which we should be, we should always make profit, but we became too focused on profit. So we stopped giving the kind of service that we used to give. So instead of bringing, instead of having the right senior people and being able to to really over-service the client and over-service became a big word, we just sort of ended up with how many times have you heard, oh my God, they came and sold us with the A team and then they brought in the C team to manage the business. In fact, something that's what a big piece of your business is about, is helping agencies and their clients make sure that that doesn't happen. So that there's good accountability for who and when and, and how much time we spend on, on business. And I think that that's very important, but that's what happened. And so over time, and then we went through this, we went through this um, roller coaster of CMOs changing all the time and constant pitching and holding companies coming after the same piece of business time and time again and prices dropping, us, the industry, dropping its prices, clients demanding to know not just like how much money the secretary was getting paid, but how many days of vacation she took so they could figure out the profitability It's absurd. It's absurd. And I think that at some point, it's incumbent upon the agencies to make sure that. And I know that that at WPP, this is a huge focus of of Mark Reed's to have the right people with the right skill set, people who know data and who know about digital transformation, which is not digital marketing, but What are the problems that our clients are going through as they turn their systems into into digital systems and how important that is for us? That we bring the right people, that we have the right solutions, but clients have to look too. Clients have to understand that we have every right to make a profit as they do. And then by pushing agencies not to make profit, they're not getting the best work and they're not getting the best thinking. You know, I, I was at a conference a couple of years ago and it was all about agency profits and black boxes and, you know, digital, digital buying and programmatic buying and da 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 and You know that that was a big issue in the industry. Mm-hmm. And the person who was talking on stage was a client not of ours from an insurance agency and was really going after the industry. Oh my God, you people, you people, black box, black box, too much profit, too much profit. We have no idea. And somebody said to him, look, at the end of the day, we put up the money, we make those purchases, it's our with the media, and if we resell it, if you could get it, buy it for a dollar, and we can buy it for 50 cents ourselves and sell it to you for 75 cents, you're still saving money. And this person said, well, but you're doing it with my money. So I have every right to the 50 cents, not the 75 cent price. So I raised my hand. I said, look, you know, I don't really know much about the insurance industry. But as I recall, it works through actuarial tables and ages and deaths and general numbers and algorithms, if you will. And as people come into your system, it changes and more people come in. The more money they put in, the way their ages change and their conditions change, it changes. And he said, yes, exactly. He said, You understand that? I said, great. So then it means that if I get a policy from you, every time somebody comes in and buys a policy, you're gonna send me a note, right? That explains to me exactly how that just impacted my policy. And maybe it should lower my price. Maybe it should raise it. Maybe it doesn't touch it. But you're going to do that, right? Because you're not a black box. You're very transparent. And so everybody started to laugh. There were a thousand people in the audience. Everybody started to laugh hysterically. He was pretty pissed off. But that's the problem. My clients think it's their right to make profit and their right to do that. But it's not ours. I don't know. It's a
0: problem. And David, you've been through a lot of... I mean, you, you explained all of this, but what do, you think, what do you think are the changes that need to be made in order to, you said 30 years ago, we started with this. Like, how do you think we can get back to those days?
1: I think we are. I mean, I think that they, again, as I said, I think the ability to bring data to the table and to use it to help enable the story is huge. To help in a because it enables us to target better and by the way the notion that they say that the industry didn't know targeting is also crap when i started in the business in 1976 it wasn't what it is today obviously because we didn't have the understanding we didn't have the technology we didn't have the applications to do it but we always use data i mean we've never not used data and as more and more data came in we used more and more data now it's unbelievable because you have the ability as I said before, to completely link the two sides. So it's the science and the art. And by the way, the science and the art, it's not clear which is which, because I think there's an art to using data, too. There's an art to insight. Data, excuse me, that insight is just so many bits and bytes, right? So I think that that's another thing. I think the insight that we bring to clients is very valuable. I think that's a huge value add, And I think that our ability to, to take all of these pieces and clients' desire to work again with people who care about their business, who know about their business, and who wanna be a part of their business is gonna change. And we're already seeing some change. I mean, there already there's some incredibly powerful client relationships. Um, at WPP and some of the other holding companies and independent companies as well, you know, these um, engagements and relationships that go back 20, 30 years. And my bet is that those relationships have some of the best work and some of the best thinking and and have advanced the most, not because they have inertia and not because they got tired of each other, but because they've partnered in the right way. Because they believe in each other's business. And I think that's critical. I think we need to we need to be back to partnerships to believing in each other's business.
0: Totally true. Let me do up our indices here. Maybe, uh, and by the way, I just want to say, Sandy, I think yeah. again,
1: products like yours are critical because the ability the ability to track works both ways. Right? The ability to have accountability is really critical. And so I can be accountable to myself for my hours used and for how I use my people and for, my, for, for the usage and I can be accountable to the client. I think that's amazing. So I think that when, when I think about it, I think that the ability to bring those tools to the table, that's the kind of data that makes the agencies more profitable, but it's also the kind of data that makes the whole
0: relationship more profitable just in terms of output. Thank you for those kind words. And for those who stay until the end, uh, David will be available to answer any of your questions. So please use it that, the chat to start asking questions now. And if you're watching this through YouTube, uh, and if you're liking the video podcast, feel free to invite people to join us by sharing the link. And also give a thumbs up here on YouTube, um, David. And, and we will spend the last twenty minutes of this conversation answering the questions that you have that you guys uh, post here. So, David, you were saying that thirty years ago, CEOs of your clients would call the agency before they call. McKinsey. Would you say that consulting firms are winning this battle? And if uh, 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 forget about the word battle, right? But do you think consulting firms are winning clients to agencies? No. And why? So I think I think that it's a fear.
1: I think the fear is greater than the reality. So look. McKinsey, I've worked with, I've worked with all the consulting firms, right? And so when I was a person Marsteller back in the day, we worked hand in hand with McKinsey. McKinsey would come into a client, clients would call McKinsey and say, we had a problem, we need to change Change management we need. We would come in as person Marsteller and say, okay, it's great that McKinsey will look at the process, they'll look at the system, they'll tell you how to do it. But you're not going to be successful if you don't communicate that internally. If you don't communicate it externally. If you don't create the pathways for discussion. If you don't build a brand the right way. So we used to come in and had an incredible practice coming in behind McKinsey. And doing that It was great. McKinsey didn't do what we did. We didn't do what they did. And I think that what's happened over the past few years is everybody... The, everybody, as in the uh, consulting firms, think that they can do what we do. So they get paid a lot of money for their consulting side and it allows them to basically give away some of what we do, not all of it, but some of it. So as you know, some of the consulting companies have bought not just digital companies, but they've bought creative companies. mm mm-hmm. And their, and their hope is that then they go in and they have this big engagement, and they're getting paid a lot of money, so they have more available funds and more profit. They can use that as a way to get another very profitable, big consulting contract and get, you know that lasts for a while. And so my view is, they're throwing our work away. They're, they're using it to give away. Now that can not be very valuable and it shouldn't be very valuable and it's not what they do. So ultimately, when they have to start investing in that side of the business, investing in people, when they understand what it actually takes to get the work done, I think they're going to be in trouble. And so my view is we need to stay focused on what we do and what we do best and not get sidetracked by trying to fight them. You know, I I look back in 2000, when I did my, um, for Wonder, we did our first, you know, 2001, maybe we did our very first five year strategic plan for WPP. And they asked me to, who was our competition? Already back then we identified the consulting companies. So it's not new. 20 years ago, we knew that they wanted to be in our side of the business, particularly on the digital side. And so they've just been making investments as they get there, but it's still our business. And I think that clients would still rather work with us. Sorry, see we have a question. Coming from a mid-sized Marcom agency established in 1970 in Chicago, you are spot on. Oh, thank you for that. Ooh, thank you. Somebody somebody with me. We gain clients from the big agency when they were pitching with the A team, they're bringing in the B team after they can the cap. Totally with your perspective. thanks for the conversation. No, thank you. And you know, again, by the way, mid size agencies very quickly become large size agencies or in their pursuit of being large agencies do the same thing. So it's it's something that we all need to pay attention to. I'll, I'll tell you, one of my good friends, has a wonderful, Um, agency of Brooklyn, one of the hot shops. And he told me that one of his biggest problems was that when they were smaller, somehow they managed to get things done with a small number of people. But as the budgets grew, somehow the relationship between people and budget didn't hold. I'm not talking about in absolute numbers, I'm just even saying, In terms of percentages it didn't hold so the bigger the budgets somehow the percentage of people grew and it never made any sense to him but that's what happens right and then that's when you're forced with the a team and the b team because you just don't have enough people and you don't have enough of those people to actually go to pitch and to run so you're pitching, pitching 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 and running 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 but you're always a little bit behind and so,
0: you know, it's a challenge. David, you know, I have a ton of questions for you, but I am seeing here in the Q&A that a lot of people are bringing in their questions. So I'll let people ask you because I think it's more valuable. Here, Daniel asks how should agencies respond to the in-house trend that is enveloping both media buying and creative agencies and creative services?
1: Right, so the truth is that Literally since the day I came into the business, this notion of in-housing has gone through all of these, it's, it's gone through, through stages and phases and, and waves. And it's a problem. It's a growing problem, again, yet again. Here's the way I look at it. First of all, we should embrace it. I've long believed that one of the things that we need to do is embed people at the client so that they're in the client's guts, they're walking the halls, they're part of the meetings that happen every single day, so it doesn't require a phone call or an email or a text or a WhatsApp or a Slack or whatever. I, I, sometimes I lose track. Some you know, some people are on so many different things, like, uh, like, I Slacked you this morning, but wait a second, I, I thought you, were sending me, you know, around, it, it, it's crazy, right? Be there, be with the client, like listen. Obviously, COVID now, and you know, got my my mask. Notice it matches his as colors. As I got this is pretty crazy, right? Just shows you how nuts I am. I have <laughs> so, I have masks in every color. So this is the black mask, my Zoro mask. But when I'm wearing black, if I was wearing blue today, I'd have like. Blue one. Anyways, masks aside, this, this is pre COVID, obviously. So the embedding in clients is really important. And I think that what happened is clients started looking and they said, okay, I have to have my own data. Clients need to have data centers, clearly. So they look at what we do and they say, well, I can do that. Now, the truth is, what we do with data is, should be, and is a little bit different than what they do. But somehow, these things became conflated and clients said, I can do all the data. Once they had the data, they looked at programmatic buy and said, well, hell, I can do that too. And so they took that piece and once they did the programmatic buy, now, here's my view. right? Every company in the world has a limited amount of money to invest in its capital projects. It's part of making money. It's part of of what we do. If you are a cookie company and you start investing huge amounts of money, capital in programmatic buying, what do you think, what do you possibly think your shareholders will say in two years when it starts eating into your profits? But you're gonna have to make those investments. See, it looks good the first year. It looks like you saved money. Second year, maybe. By the third year, not so clear by the fourth year, forget it. And so you see a lot of companies have in-house and then they kind of take it out again and then maybe they bring a little piece back. So I think that we just need to embrace it in the biggest way that we can and make ourselves the in-house, but do it in such a way that it's way more efficient, way more cost-effective, but yet gives the client back here this huge resource of people, and ideas, and variable usage that they don't have by hiring two creative people to work inside. So hopefully the is What do you think? Here's one. Yeah. David, what do you think about that commonly mentioned tendency of big brands and the customers creating their own in-house creativity area? Oh, so it's basically the same question. I mean, our advertising agencies disappearing? Yeah. disappear. They're not tending to disappear. They're not, honestly. I got to tell you, I've seen in the past six, eight months, so many little advertising agencies come. It, it's crazy. Like people who've left big agencies or kind of lost their jobs or whatever it is and actually get clients or pieces of clients or whatever who are working And they're not in housing at all. We will not disappear. Folks, don't lose that frame of mind. You are important. We work in an important industry that adds huge value. Don't let anybody tell you anything different.
0: Full stop. (laughs) David, why do you think Here's another question. What do you think consultant firms can build double or triple the hour than what an agency can build for their service?
1: Because they never killed their own businesses. They're, they never walked around, their CEOs didn't go around talking about how bad their consulting was or how undigital they were or how they weren't part of the real world. And it's pretty amazing. <laughs> You think about it, folks. Like in our industry, how we put guns to our own heads, somehow thinking that that was a good thing. So they never did that. They just kept going, right? They were adding value. I have to tell you, I saw it, this blew my mind. So if I would come to you, if I was your client, and say, you know, I need you to do a branding exercise for me, I want you to. Go back, look at the competition, put it together, give me a view, look at our brand, look at their brands, what's different, what's interesting, whatever. If I was your client, and I was a big client, I will bet you that most of you would either figure out how to do it within the course of what you do, not charge much more of anything or much more for it. Client would probably say to you, hey, look, I'm giving you all this money. you gotta, you, know, you got to do this. It's really important. But I guarantee you do it well. So I saw three of the biggest consulting firms pitch a piece of brand business. It wasn't a client. I was just asked to come in and look at the, um, at the pitches and just help them decide. They didn't invite any of you, any of us there's not one holding company. There's not one agency in this pitch. Was all those companies. One of the bigger companies got it. They paid them a million and a half dollars. So as you get sick in your stomach, and like stuck, oh, no, I can't believe that. Listen to me. A million and a half dollars for what we would have given away or charged almost nothing for. And if I tell you that the presentation was crap, you would have been embarrassed to present it. You never would have presented First of all, one would hope. Yours would have looked really good, if nothing else. But I guarantee you that the content, knowing as many of you as I do and knowing many of your companies, none of you would have done it other than a great presentation with real insight and real thinking and well put together. These guys went they had a couple of the junior people pull stuff together from third parties. There was no inside of something. And the client was like, "Wow, this is great," and wrote them a check for a <laughs> million and a half dollars. So basically,
0: because they have belief in themselves, they believe in their product, and they believe that what they do is great. And I think that somehow, I
1: think we've lost a little bit of that, and and rightly so. Look, you know, we've all been there. Right? We've we get beat up a little bit, but you have to believe. You have to get that belief back, folks. If nothing else, come in tomorrow, get on the call. See if you just be—you're in a great business.
0: There's another person here. David that says his his name is Grant Theron. and he says that I consider David a mentor. So very happy to see him speak again. The question Thank is, Grant, one of my buddies. <laughs> it is getting it is getting tougher to attract young talent who see the technology companies. Core, Facebook, Google, TikTok, etc., as better options. What do you? What is your advice to the industry to pick the to fix this? So that's an interesting
1: question. I've heard that before, but can I tell you that I get literally 10 calls a week, and when I say calls. It could be emails. It could be on LinkedIn. It could be through just somebody sending me an email or a text or a WhatsApp or whatever. Asking me if I can help some young person get an interview or talk to them to help direct them. I think there are more people who want to get into marketing than ever before. And I think there are plenty of young people who want to come into our business. And I think, again, part of the problem is we keep telling them, like, we keep saying, Well, you're not coming in, they're all going to TikTok. No, they're not. See, there was a time that we thought that the people who went to those places were getting paid a lot more, they had way better working conditions. Not true anymore. Was true for a bit. It's totally not true anymore. And I think that young people learn more in a great agency than they will any place else because the eclectic nature of what they learn is so much greater. They learn about TikTok. T- t- but they also learn about other media and they learn how to create a story and they learn how to attach data and they learn how to match. It's completely different. So I think that there are plenty of young people who want to come into this industry and I think we need to make it clear to them that this is a great industry to be in and that they will learn a lot and that they will grow in incredible ways that they won't necessarily grow at these other places. You know, we don't make people drink Kool-Aid. I think that's one of the great things about our industry. You know, look at, look at some of these young people who go to the, the social media companies. I mean, look at the revolt going on at the social media companies. Hello. Like, you notice that? Like, the number of people who are leaving and the blogs and the chat rooms and the Reddits, everything, it's filled with just, like, get me out of here. These people are nuts because they're expected to drink the Kool-Aid. We don't drink Kool-Aid. We have open eyes, that's what we do. And we know how to use the products better than anybody. I think that's really critical. We don't just know how to use Facebook. We're not a Facebook and think Facebook is the cure-all for everything. We also know how to use Reddit. And we also also know how to use TikTok. And we also know how to use anything else that'll come to the table, whatever else comes. We will figure out how to use it. We'll be at the front line of usage. Guaranteed. We always were. We were at the front line of print, of radio, of cinema, of television. Always. We lost it a little bit in the beginning, honestly. And I think this is also part of the problem because you know it's interesting. In the in the early days of television, is before my time. But I don't think anybody ever walked into a living room and said, oh my God, how did those people get in that box? That's technology. I, I can't touch that. Instead, people in our industry look at and said, wow, look at that. Look what they're doing. So let's help them tell their stories better. And let's bring our clients in here and figure out how we do it. And we created an industry. Digital, we looked at and said, that's technology. It's not ours. And so what happened was we gave away the first five years. We did it, we gave it away. Pathetically, we gave it away. And lots of little companies came up, none of whom exist anymore, for the most part. All rip-offs, in my view, who were charging millions upon millions of dollars for stuff that today you don't pay for. My granddaughter can do some of the stuff that they do. She's five years old, my, my little. And we gave it away, but no more,
0: no more. David, so here, Dave Hanson says he has a 170 employees, a mid-size agency. He says, we build mostly hourly and have great margins. Yet, Tim Williams, common speaker, encourages charges for, charging for value, not hourly rates or monthly fees. Are you aware of any agencies that work with the clients and are paid just on value? So yeah, there
1: are agencies that, that do get paid for value. I personally always liked value charging um, more than hourly. And again, I think it's a it depends which lawyers work on an hourly basis, right? Because, and that's how they make their money. So they work on an hourly basis. If it takes the case, how long it takes, they get paid. That's the end of it. I think our business is different because the value. And by the way, not all do. Some of them get paid that way, and then they work deals to get paid on the end of the deal as well, so they get a percentage of whatever the settlement is, and that's where the really big bucks are. So I think that value pricing is really, really works if you know how to use it, and if you can value yourself well enough. And if your relationship with the client is such that the client values it, I think that's part of the problem. Clients have to value it. So we got caught up in this whole scope of work and FTEs. And No, it doesn't really take you five people. You only need three. And why do you need this one? And they're making too much money anyways. Give me this one. That's just not a way to, to solve a problem. Get paid for solving problems you should know how much it'll cost you you should have a sense of how much it's worth to the client and if you can get value if you can value price that do it put a little bit of yourself at risk i mean i always believe that you put money at risk in these things right get paid for what you do which you should client gets paid for what they do get paid for what you do and put something at risk so that you get more value but i think that's critical i see here asanthi a question we all know that data is king, but did data usage kill a lot of the creative risk taking and the overall product delivery just dropped? No. I don't think that's, I, I don't agree with that. I think that in some cases, yes, it did impact it. And I think amongst people who thought that data is the driver and that what you attach to it, is, it makes no difference. But those people kind of went away. I mean, it's, it's, it's it just doesn't work. So I think data is critical, but I don't think data is king. I think the story content is king. Data is the court. Data is the without data, the king is sort of by themselves, right? So without data, your story, your content, the king is over here. But if you surround the king with data, with this incredible court, with the army, with the people who move, then the king is really powerful. That's the way to look at it. There is no conflict between data and creative. There should not be. I know there still exists, so you're right, but they're wrong.
0: It's <laughs> just fact. Data is not king, data is the court, it's the enabler. Content is king. That's a great point of view, David. Thanks for that. And here an anonymous attendee says, I have a boutique agency and having a hard time scaling my business because media, which has fueled so much revenue has moved almost exclusively to media agencies. So now what is the best way to scale? Investors, new offices, what makes sense today?
1: So look, that's not a new story. That's a 20-year-old story, and it continues, to, it continues to be true. My sense is like this. In my view, even back in my day, media buying was already becoming a commodity. And there were companies, it was a very famous company, I think they were the first maybe, called Airtime, you can all go look it up, that basically did media buying. And so they aggregated, they understood the the power of the scale of dollar aggregation and got better rates or whatever. And so they made that a commodity. Planning is not a commodity. Planning is a value head. But channel planning, not just media planning, channel planning, where should I be? What should I do? And then how do I best allocate what I give to the buyers? that's where you should be putting your money and your time. Because I think that that's, I wouldn't worry about, it. that revenue has been gone forever. I'm not, I'm less concerned about the meat. And by the way, there's not that much revenue there. When I started the business, it was all still commission based. And so it was great. You could staff your business any which way you wanted. You could make big parties, you do all kinds of great things because that commission was was so good. Once the commission went away and everybody went to the same scope of work, FTEs, there's not that much money there, honestly. I mean, it's just not. Programmatic brought more money to the table for sure. But I think that think about things that, that add value. What adds value? What adds value is human intelligence. It's intel. It's not just churning numbers. It's understanding what, mean. It's understanding what's important. It's understanding how to connect your story. You know, it's interesting. It was, um, I think it was J.P. Morgan Chase, were the first who came back and said, you know, this programmatic is great. I got 100,000 different sites I'm on in a day, but I'm attached to all kinds of bad content I don't want to be attached to. I need this rethought. And they went down to now 5,000 or less without any degradation. And now many people follow. So I think this notion of not just taking stuff that comes out of a pipe and saying, okay, my work is gonna follow, but thinking about where should I be, where should my content be? How do I how do I make those connections stronger and better? That's value add. That's where that's where you should be. That's what you should be thinking about.
0: So I think this also answers the question of Yomara Arnold that says how can we recover the value we lost as an industry? And I think that you, David, are, are putting a lot of like energy and effort in, in, in telling the audience that is the power- here's a good one. Santi, here's a good
1: one from Pablo. Is the gig economy or the gig trend boosting the industry or hurting and how? So here's an interesting one. And I'll tell you, <laughs> It's going to be the. Uh, it's going to be part of a of another blog that I'm I'm working on and I'm thinking about. So, what is the gig economy? So first of all, in our industry, there's always been a gig economy. We call them freelancers, and as long as I remember, every agency that I ever knew used freelancers, and they used it because they never had enough people. When big crunches came, you couldn't go out and hire enough people to come in and you didn't want to do that right because you wanted to have some kind of variable system. So you had freelancers and you knew who was good for what and you always had people looking. We had a whole department that just looked at freelancers. So that we always had freelancers ready to work. We knew the guys who were great at pharma, who were great at cars, who were great at CPG, who were great at B2B, whatever. And you just said so that always that's always been there. That's always been there. So to me, what is this notion of the gig economy? So what's happened? So because of Uber, we talk about a gig economy. I got to tell you, my friends who drove taxis when we were younger they didn't become professional taxi drivers. They were part of the gig economy. It's a, we've created this thing called the gig economy because it's driven crazy valuations for some companies. But it's not clear to me. Because, so it's a gig economy because those poor people don't have any safety net. They don't get social services, they don't get social benefits from their companies. And they're all revolting because nobody wants to live that way. And so those companies get huge, crazy valuations because they say, oh, wow, it's the gig economy. This is what's happening in the digital world. Crap. Those people have always been there. It's just that we never allowed them to, to lose the social net. Now we have. So I don't think that the gig economy is hurting us. I think the gig economy has always been a part of what we've done. And I think you need to understand how to best use freelancers and what to do with them. In fact, the um, New York Festival Awards have the Bowery Awards, which are gonna be coming out soon. Um, I think they, they just closed them, maybe the, the entrance has got a ton of entrance, which is really about those people because those people haven't had their own, the, the freelancers, the independent workers, if you will, the gig economy today. They haven't had their own recognition. So now they have something called the barrier Board, which is going to be their own recognition. And I pay big attention to that because I think it's
0: important. So David, we have five minutes left and these five minutes are for you. What do you want to tell people about the industry, about yourself, about, Storytelling about communications. Any, anything. Let me just.
1: Let me. Yeah, thank you, son. I, I think we've said enough about that. I, I think I see this one last anonymous time attendee. Just a quick one. Best way to differentiate from other agencies and not be a commodity. Thought leadership, owning tech. There's so many small agencies now. Can we stand apart and compete for new business on a different level? At the end of the day. The end of the day, right? We can all buy tech. We can all rent tech. We can all license tech. Just the way it is. We didn't own printing presses back in the day. It was only print. You went and used the best presses that there were, right? That's how we. But what did you do? You made the best work. That is how you differentiate yourself. Have better insight. Understand your client's business, understand your business, and bring the two together. You know, I once heard somebody say in a seminar, you need to know your client's business better than the client. So I heard that. I said, that's a bunch of shit. Like, what does that mean? If I understood the client's business better than the client, I'd be CEO of the client's business, not my business. But I know my business better. And I know how to look at their business through my lens. And that's the value that I bring my client. And if I can do that and marry those two things, that's where the magic happens. So that's important for that. But let me just say just a couple of words in closing. And just about life and just sort of like reflecting on, on what I think are important and just some things maybe for you to think about. You know, we're in a, we're in a bad time, we're in the time of the plague of 2020. And some people, and rightly so, have been locked up at home and it's hurt their mental health and the despair. I think we've we've reached this place where finally the, the notion of having so many friends but not really being connected because we somehow mistook the digital friends for real friends is, I think it's come home to roost because I always said that the only friend you have is the person who picks you up at the airport in the middle of the night. That's how you know who your friends are. And I think we found that. Our friends were the people who came, brought us chicken soup when we were sick and called us on the phone, used their cell phones and not scheduled Zooms to see how we were and who really cared. And I think that what you need to do is go back and start reaching out to people. I'm a hugger and so it's hard for me because you can't hug people anymore. And you, we can't show our we can't be in that kind of close proximity but you can talk to people and you can do things beyond the Zoom call and you can get one to one and just say how are you? What are you doing? How can I help you? Let's just talk. There's nothing more valuable. There's somebody asked me in a call a few weeks ago, how did you balance your life? You're so involved in nonprofits and in the industry and in the companies and with clients and your children. How did you do it? And I said, you know, I did it because I don't believe there's balance. They say, what are you talking about? Like you're known for, for believing in people and balances. No, no, no. If you spend your life thinking about, okay, I'm going to give you 20% and I'm going to give you 30, and so that leaves me 50, but I'll give of that 50 10, you'll go nuts, and you will accomplish zero, nothing. Instead, you have to give 100% to every single thing that you do. And yes, I get it that it can add up to 500%. It's just the way it is. Everything you do has to be 100%. It makes no difference. 100%. Years ago, when I started traveling, I started traveling back in the 80s. There weren't many people who traveled around the world, certainly not in our company. And there were no cell phones, There's no email in the beginning. And there was often I went, if I couldn't find a way to get to the at and International Operator, which was in some countries, I might go three days without talking to my wife and kids, and she had no way of knowing where I was. I was in Indonesia during a coup. I was in the Philippines during a coup. No way to call out. No way to be in touch. But that's what I did. And my wife said to me, you know, you really, You, The breadwinner is just the way it worked out. You make more than I do. It's important for us your job. So here's the deal. You travel. You continue to do that. But when you're home, even if it's for an hour, you need to be home 100%. 100% in the game. And so I did my best. I thought not as well as I should have or could have until I asked one of my daughters a couple of years ago, I said, you know, I just feel so bad. I missed so many things. And she goes, what are you talking about, Dad? You missed nothing. And the truth is, I did. But to her, I didn't because she knew that I did my best to be there 100%. And that's what you have to do. Be there 100% for your friends. Be there 100% for your clients. Be there 100% for your colleagues. Whatever you're doing, be there 100%. And my personal motto is do it big. Or stay in bed. If every morning you can't wake up thinking about how you're going to change the world in some new way, in some better way than you did yesterday, and changing the world could be just your little world. It could be just between you and a friend, between you and a client. Some new big idea that you have. A passion, go out and vote. If you can't do that every day, you might as well just stay in bed another hour. Who cares? Doesn't make difference. David, so that's my
0: view. <laughs> great closing, very inspiring. Thanks again. I mean, you're you, you're always great. I think that's why you're probably I. you're LinkedIn named you one of the 20s most inspiring and thoughtful leaders in the world. Right? Is, is that right? Yeah, I don't know about that, but something similar. But it's okay. The only as inspiring
1: is the people who listen to you so i do my best but thank you santi thank you so much and i'll just say one last word. inspiration is a two-way street mentoring is a two-way street So everybody who you mentioned who's called and i thank them and i'm humbled that they call me their mentor but i look at them as my mentors i've learned from every single person that i talk to everybody that i'm with and I think that if you do that, it just makes the world a much better place. So, Santi, thank you. All of you who are listening. Thank you. I hope I answered your questions. And if I didn't, feel free to contact me and I'll try to do better. And uh, do it bigger, stay in bit.
0: Yeah. Thank you, David. It has been great. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. You can find this afterwards in different social media link and, and YouTube as well. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye.